Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. I'm so excited to present this episode, our conversation with Dr. David Katz. He is recognized globally for his expertise in nutrition, weight management, and the prevention of chronic diseases. He's a medical doctor with a master's in public health from Yale University. He specialized in internal medicine and preventive medicine and is the founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center. He was the past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and founder president of True Health Initiative, a nonprofit organization established to promote messages about healthy, sustainable diet and lifestyle in the service of adding years to lives and life to years around the globe. He's also the founder and CEO of his own startup company, Diet ID, which is a new digital dietary assessment tool and helps healthcare professionals work with their patients and clients on improving their diets. This man is a force of nature. He has won many awards for his contributions to public health and holds multiple patents for his inventions in research methodology. He has published around 200 scientific articles and textbook chapters, 16 books to date, including multiple editions of leading textbooks in both preventive medicine and nutrition. He's a journalist and commentator addressing matters of health and medicine and has been quoted in most major magazines and newspapers and has appeared widely on radio and television. It's hard to find a physician and a scientist as eloquent as him and his peers call him the poet laureate of health promotion. He was recently nominated for the 2019 James Beard Foundation Journalism Award in Health and Wellness. He is incredible. So when he talks, we listen, and we always have. For those of us who have known him, he has been a source of unbiased, evidence-based information on health, prevention, and wellness for the past 20 years or so. So it is our pleasure to present this podcast to you. We hope you enjoy it. And here we are with Dr. David Katz. So glad to be here with you today. Dean and I see you as a beacon of reason and uh, consistency in this battlefield of truth. Um, we've known of your work for a very long time, and uh, we're so pleased to be partners with you in the True Health Initiative. And uh, to give you some more flattery, as if your science is not impeccable enough, um, you're a savage of a debater. Um, <laughs> and for people to truly see you on the battlefield, they should go on YouTube and see you speak with Nina Teichels. And uh, for <laughs> for yeah. a physician scientist, you write like a poet, and we're, we're such big fans. And uh, thank you. We can't thank you enough for being here with us. Uh, Aisha, lovely words. <laughs> uh, you're my friends. You're my colleagues. It's a pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you. I, I think this is uh, outside of sports events, and we shouldn't be we should be disconnected. You know, emotionally not too involved. When we saw that debate, we were like hands up in the air and cheering because science needs more than just the data, more than just the information. It needs a voice. And, and I think that's what we want to do. And, and you do it eloquently, beautifully, and, and you know, in, a, in a poetic way, which connects to people. Thank you. You know, it's an interesting situation for me. First of all, um, I was reluctant to accept the invitation to do that debate um, because th this is 
someone who I, you know, I think uh, approaches this space with social media um, manipulations and ad hominems and so forth. And, and, you know, it isn't about content expertise. It's about, you know, can I find a way to uh, assassinate your character through innuendo? And I, so I knew what I was signing up for, and it's extremely unpleasant. I also knew I had no interest in engaging in that. Um, you know, frankly, you know, if someone says bad things about you and you say, no, it's not true. You've lost, you know, yeah. then, then you basically, they set a trap and you walked into it. But the alternative, and, you know, again, I, so this was at the, the Soho Forum, um, and we were debating the merits of plant-based nutrition, although, frankly, the resolution was constructed as kind of a straw man. Yeah. The, the whole thing was an ambush, uh, but I knew that. Um, and I, I had to systematically ignore the ad hominems, all of which were false. Um, you know, I mean, it was basically just innuendo. And um, you can say things like, you know, your lab has had industry funding. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, my lab has had NIH funding and CDC funding and other foundation funding and industry funding. And, you know, we, we apply the same standards all the time. Um, but it's not as if, you know, I've got eggs or eggplants to sell, right? I mean, yeah. I'm interested in the truth and the funding source is the funding source. But you can say, yeah, but his lab is industry funding, so his opinion's for sale. So th that whole debate um, was, on the one hand, an attempt at character assassination and, on my side, a focus on content. But what it meant was I had to ignore the attempts at character assassination and just let them hang out yes. there. Yeah, my right. wife was in the audience. Mm -hmm. uh, two of my daughters were in the audience, and they—I mean—they were just—they could barely contain themselves. <laughs> I mean, they were—they were so—they they knew these allegations were all false, and and contrived, and you know, it was all just sort of snarky and derisive innuendo. Mm -hmm. uh, poor things. I mean, they—they—they they, they had smoke coming out of their ears. <laughs> oh, no, I, I <laughs> but can't. In any, I took one for the team. It, you know, it had to be done because um, the truth is important, and ultimately, yeah. it is about content and, and defending what really matters to public health. So um, anyway, I did what had to be done. It was beautiful. Kudos, was kudos beautiful. to you. Yeah. I, I, I can understand how your wife and your daughters felt in the crowd. We were feeling the same on the other end of the computer. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that we've been, uh, even in the couple of hours that we've gotten feedback, is that uh, they want to know your journey. I mean, um, we have medical students and residents that are following us and, and uh, listening to this. They would love to know how you got to where you are right now. Okay. All right. Well, um, you know, I think inevitably our journeys begin with an element of selfishness. I mean, we each of us is our only window to the universe. And so, you know, we see things from a very intimate perspective, even when we're interested in the big picture. So I became interested in fitness, as I guess a lot of young guys do as a teenager. Um, and started exercising routinely at age 13. Uh, I, I think discovering exercise and an acute interest in girls kind of happens around the same time. You <laughs> yes. know, I, I think that, that, of course. Tends, yes. yeah, that tends to occur too, right? Um, so I got into exercise and then kind of found my way into thinking about food as the fuel 
you know, and just the, the simple notion that if you want a high performance machine, you have to put in high performance fuel. And, and I had paid little attention to die for my dad's a cardiologist. So there was, my family was a little more enlightened on that topic than most maybe, but, but my mom, you know, traditional Jewish American diet, you know, I mean, we, we ate the same stuff everybody else ate until I changed that. And I, you know, kind of led my family on a, on a journey. So first it was, it really was very personal. And then uh, medical school was sort of the path of least resistance for me in an odd way. Um, again, my dad was a doc. Um, I was a rambunctious kid and broke a bunch of bones. So I spent a lot of time in emergency rooms and really appreciated the orthopedists who put me back together again and again and again. <laughs> so, you know, I, I had an acute uh, appreciation for what medicine was about and could do. You know, not so much disease prevention, health promotion, but just, you know, sort of the power and the prowess of medicine. What a, what a great way to help people in their moment of need. I mean, they'd helped me. They'd stitched me up and, and you know, splinted me and <laughs> got me walking again over and over. So I was, you know, I, I I thought, well, that that's a really cool thing to do, and I, you know, honestly, I think I was fairly simple-minded. Now, we we used to talk about there being three career options: doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. <laughs> I, I lacked the bloodline for one of the three, so I was, I was down to two choices. Yeah. And I did think about law, frankly, um, but I chose medicine. And uh, I, you know, I, I went to Dartmouth. Um, I did most of my pre-medical requirements in high school. So I, one thing I will throw in the mix, and I think that may be important for those listening who, who are still at those decision nodes, uh, I, I really, really appreciated my liberal arts education. And, mm -hmm. and it serves me extremely well. I, you said some kind things about poetry and such. And there's no question that you know, Aristotle in his poetics wrote about an eye for resemblances. I think it's crucial to the medical craft. We're always looking for how is this patient? the one I need to take care mm -hmm. of now, like a population of patients that came before so I can predict outcomes, so mm -hmm. I can prognosticate, so I can, so I can get it right. So we are poets of a sort engaging in analogy and metaphor and simile. You are like this other group of patients, mm -hmm. right? It, it's part of the clinical craft. But I think it's also part of the craft of communication. You know, very often we see some things most clearly out of the corner of our eye. And so it's not by looking directly at the topic of, you know, does meat increase the risk of chronic disease that we understand it best. But maybe we look to the side and we talk about running with scissors and maybe we'll get into that or, <laughs> yes, or touching yes. a fire. And, you know, yeah. how is it we know what we know? So I, I routinely rely on, on metaphor. And all of that's richly informed by my liberal arts education. Amazing. I studied the humanities and Shakespeare and, you know, the great works of literature, Western civilization, Eastern religion, logic, philosophy, economics, mm -hmm. majored in French with a focus on medieval literature. And then went to medical school. And uh, God, medical school was horrible. Uh, when I went to Einstein. You know, I moved from Hanover, New Hampshire. I'm a country boy at heart. Loved it. Beautiful woods. Uh, and I was then in the Bronx with uh, cockroaches and a crazy roommate. And, you know, we'd walk home late at night from anatomy lab and sometimes see, you know, cars on fire. You know, it, it, was a, it was a real culture shock. Um, not to mention the fact, that, as both of you know all too well, you know, the first two years of medical school, they effectively saw off the top of your head, stick in a funnel and dump in data yeah. until oh, yes. you can stand it no more. Right. Yeah, so exactly. painful, painful. So, I, you know, I, I actually started to have doubts about the whole enterprise and thought, well, you know, one thing I can't do is waste my dad's money. I mean, I got to I got to make it through here and at least get a degree so yeah. I can say, Dad, this is what you bought. <laughs> 
But I thought, geez, I, I'm not sure I want to do this. And I started looking at contingency plans in the middle of medical school. And I thought about becoming a chef. You know, this whole idea, I loved, I love good food. I loved how food could make you feel. I loved how I had been using it to fuel my fitness journey. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to be really knowledgeable about the human body and how it works and what it takes to make it run well? And then also be an expert, just sort of a gourmet doctor yeah. or you know medical <laughs> chef, or and, and obviously that exists now, right? I mean, yes, yes know, it I, does. I mean, we have colleagues who do exactly that, Rob Graham and and many of others. Well, right, uh, you too. Are you I wanted to in? interject there. So when I was uh, when I was a fellow in vascular neurology and epidemiology at Columbia University, yeah, I got almost sick to the point of just seeing sickness over and over again and just the concept of giving aspirin and statin for stroke just didn't make any sense so I would be in the ICU in the morning in my scrubs and every night I would go downtown and I got my culinary degree in two years I went to cooking school because you know that just in many ways that was my my meditation to get away from all of it but at the same time to understand you know how food affects your body and a better a better way to treat your patients food is medicine good for you okay so so you did what i only thought about <laughs> so i i went so far as to get an application to the culinary institute of america and i partly filled it out and just just about the time i i was ready to make that decision i got on the wards mm-hmm. mm. And I fell in love with it. I yeah. really did. I mean, it was it was hard and it was harsh. And it was at Bronx Municipal Hospital. I mean, we we worked our butts off. But I, you know, I was there at the bedside at those moments of acute need. I mean, you know, medicine is it's such a privilege. It is. It's it so is. Cool. I mean, it really is. So I, I fell in love with clinical care and said, Yeah, I really do want to be a doc after all. Um, but then I never lost that. Fa- so I didn't follow through the way you did, but I never lost that fascination with food as really the cornerstone of all the best medicine. So I, I, I finished med school and wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I went on to train in internal medicine so I'd keep all the options open. And and there, you know, as much as I tried to narrow my focus, because, you know, good scientists do that, right? Just this week, we're hearing the announcements about Nobel Prizes in medicine. Yeah. I mean, those are people... You know, they stay in that channel, right, for 40 years. And, yeah. You know, looking at that molecule or you know, that theory and working it, working it, working it. That, that's what the, the best scientists do for the most part. But inevitably, there is a risk of losing the forest, you know, for the sake of that erudition uh, regarding a particular leaf of a twig of a branch of a bough yeah. of one tree. And I'm a big picture person, for better yeah. or worse. I, you know, I think you do pay a price for that. So there I was, you know, theoretically focused entirely on learning how to take care of acutely ill people in the hospital. And unlike, I think, many of my colleagues who were just, you know, totally immersed in that experience, I was too. But I came home every day thinking, geez, you know, easily eight out of 10 of these people never needed to get this sick in the first place. Mm -hmm. This is horrible. We are all the king's horses and all the king's men trying to put Humpty Dumpty together after a fall from a wall that never needed to happen. Mm -hmm. They didn't smoke. You know, if they ate better, if they exercised, if there wasn't so much obesity, and this was the 1980s in the Bronx, if they weren't using IV drugs and having, you know, uh, unsafe sex, we, we were we were up to our necks in AIDS, and it was AIDS, and it was, you know nobody had HIV, they just had AIDS because mm-hmm. uh, we we couldn't do anything about it, it was mm-hmm. horrible. But all of that too was potentially preventable. So I found myself completely preoccupied with the idea of. Okay, you know, the best we can do is try to patch these folks back up, but you can't unscramble an egg. They're never going to have vitality again. 
but their children could yeah. and their children's children. The next cohort could. So I went on to train in preventive medicine to satisfy that need to scratch that itch. You know, just the idea that we've got to do more about keeping healthy people well because it's never as good after that. Once vitality is gone, we are all the king's horses and all the king's men. Uh, and then basically what happened was I, I completed my training in preventive medicine, public health with a focus on chronic disease epidemiology in 1993. I guess we graduate in June. And I think it was September of that year. So I mean, I just sort of a newly minted preventive medicine specialist when McGinnis and Fagy's paper came out in JAMA, Actual Causes of Death in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I, I've cited that paper ever since. You know, I really do think that's bedrock. So, you know, basically they said, hey, all the stuff that you sleepy medical residents put on death certificates in hospitals in the middle of the night when, when someone checks out uh, as cause of death is not cause. You know, I mean, atherosclerotic disease of, of the cardiovascular system as an explanation for the MI that caused the heart failure that caused death doesn't tell us anything we didn't already know. You mm-hmm. just said the disease caused the disease caused the death. What caused the disease? Yeah. Right. So famously, they enumerated the list of root causes or underlying factors, which were overwhelmingly lifestyle practices. And there were environmental exposures and social determinants, too. But, you know, effectively, 80 percent of all of the premature deaths and chronic misery in our modern culture were attributable to bad use of, and you've heard me say this before, bad use of feet, forks, and fingers. Yes. <laughs> Lack of physical activity, bad dietary pattern, tobacco. And I said, that's my career right there. If, if we could eliminate 80% of premature death and chronic disease, which is a miserable way to live, by turning what we already know into what we do something about routinely, then yeah, it would be lovely to pursue a Nobel Prize maybe, but I'll let somebody else do that. I'm going to be all about figuring out how to turn knowledge into the power of routine action. It's not glamorous, maybe. Um, certainly at Yale, you know, it was something that, that mostly went unappreciated all these years. Um, that's changed, but it took a long time. Um, but, you know, frankly, everything else we do in all of medicine is about the residual 20% of human misery we already lack the means to eliminate outright. How can you let life fallow the opportunity? to prevent eight out of 10 cases of heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, dementia, and premature death, and focus exclusively on the 20%, you know, you're just letting languish the greatest opportunity in the history of medicine and public health. So then the rest is history. And and the one other thing I'll add for you know, young people saying, okay, you know, the, the interesting narrative, but what the heck do I do? I don't know what you do. Yeah. Um, you know, you decide what change you want to be in the world, and you decide what skills you need to empower you to start working on that and you get those skills and then the only thing i can offer up is be a strategic opportunist know where the destination is do not presume to map out every step of the journey you can't life's too complicated there Mm -hmm. there are too many unexpected things along the way but if you know the difference you want to be and make and you acquire the skills you want to apply to make that difference in the world the rest kind of just happens and you size opportunities up and say, this is a movement in the direction I need to go. Yes, this takes me a step back. I'm going to have to say, no, it's interesting and maybe lucrative, but no, it doesn't, it doesn't advance the journey. Mm-hmm. It doesn't advance the mission. And I'll, you know, I did a lot of stuff over the years I never would have thought about doing it. Just kind of, but you know, when the opportunity came along, I said, uh, yeah, that could advance the mission. I'm going to try that. 
Absolutely. Um, and, and sometimes I got it right and sometimes I got it wrong. And some of them have lasted all these years and some of them came and went. But it was always about that leveraging the power of diet and lifestyle, McGinnis and Figi's short list, yeah. to add years to lives, to add life to years. And then the only other thing that, that's changed really is the signature health issue of our time is outside the boundaries of our skin. It's the fate of the planet. Yeah. It really is, right? I mean, there are no healthy people on a ruined planet. And so I, I routinely say, and, and I imagine you guys endorse this, but you know, I'll get up in front of a crowd and I will say, you really can no longer call yourself a health professional in 2019 if you don't advocate fiercely and frequently for the health of the planet because it will conspire against everything else you do if we let the planet land in the ICU and we're on the brink of doing that. So over the last decade, roughly, you know, I really tried to conjoin the focus on years in human life, life in human years to everything we can do to save this gem of a planet and, and, and make it vital and as rich for future generations as it was for us. That, that's that's exactly right. That's beautiful. I mean, one of the things that we, we have two small kids, 12 and 14, and uh, I, you, you said about opportunistic mind, uh, opportunity around higher purpose and, and environment, uh, you know, reducing uh, suffering uh, is the, the two factors, reducing suffering at the core. But the next step is courageous you know, you have to pull the trigger. There's a lot of people that look for opportunities. Actually, a lot of people don't even look for that. Opportunities around your skills, opportunities in the direction, the bigger direction of life. But then you have to pull the trigger. A lot of people talk themselves out of it. You know, we, we were, uh, I, I did two years in uh, NIH at Experimental Therapeutics Branch. Oh, my goodness. Uh, how many poor mice went under my guillotine and, mm, and, right. and uh, back then? My, wife, my wife's a neuroscientist yeah. and, and got her Ph.D. at Princeton and worked with rats. And we talk about it all the time now and how she, she couldn't do that anymore. Yeah, exactly. Same. And then we went to with Leon Thal and UCSD, which, is, which was the main dementia place in the country. And, you know, I have mentors that 800, 900 publications, great, great work. But at the end of the day, what did we do as far as reducing suffering? And so we just took a huge leap. Her, she did it from Columbia, and I did it from UCSD and NIH. We, we decided to go in the lifestyle direction. So right. you, you're, you're right. courageous. Right. But, well, thank you, Dean. But let me just make you stop there and say thank you, because that's hard work. You know, I mean, really, the, the reductionistic aspects of science, that is where we will answer the residual 20%. Yes. And that matters too, right? I mean, there's of stuff course. we don't know how to treat effectively. There's stuff we don't know how to cure. There, there are, you know, advanced dementia, ALS, um, autoimmune diseases, um, cancers that we treat ineffectively. And it's, that's courageous work too. It really is. Oh, so, I definitely agree. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're, they're going to be people who owe a, a great debt of gratitude to, to you for, for the ardors of that work. And so one of the things I, you know, I always point out, I, I, I actually, it's interesting, just a quick digression. So again, I'm, I'm basically just saying thank you for, for oh, thank the, you. the years of that hard work. I had to give a talk at a Harvard Lifestyle Conference a few years back. Eddie Phillips, a colleague of ours, invited me as a keynote address. It was a big deal and really important to, to them and me. And I got sick. I got really sick, um, tick bite. I'm, I'm, I've got dogs and a horse. I'm out in the woods all the time. I got anaplasmosis. Oh I thought I was going to die. Uh, I couldn't turn my eyeballs. And uh, I, I wound up, in fact, I thought, because I, um, I, I wound up riding sick one day. I didn't realize how sick I was. And I, I wound up coming off my horse and hitting the ground pretty hard. 
and that's and then I started feeling really badly, and I thought it was the fall. I didn't realize let it me, was. Poor. Let me diagnose Guillain Barre. <laughs> no, no, I didn't have Guillain Barre. No, I was just out of plasmosis oh, and, oh. and and um, you know sort of a reactive uh, meningitis. But yeah. but in any event, I um, I thought I didn't know I was sick. I knew I had fallen. I thought. I'm feeling so sick. I must be bleeding inside my head. I wound up at the emergency room at Yale New Haven Hospital. I had a CT of the head. I had an LP, and and eventually we figured out. No, you know, it's, there's 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 no trauma inside your head. This is you've got anaplasmosis. Your blood work is is a mess. Anyway, I wound up in the hospital on IV tetracycline. Wow. <laughs> and. Um, and I got better fast. Yeah. So I had to give the talk at, at Eddie Phillips conference at Harvard uh, from my hospital bed via Skype hooked up to an IV. <laughs> and, and what I wound up saying is, look, this is a lifestyle medicine conference. I'm a lifestyle medicine guy. That's what I was supposed to be talking about, but I'm not <laughs> going to. One of the things that can happen, you know, as, as we highlight how unbelievably powerful and important lifestyle as medicine is, is we can sometimes seem to disparage medicine as medicine. But I got to tell you right here, right now, I am damn glad to have this IV (laughs) and have the antibiotics flowing through it. So, you know, I, again, there is definitely room for both. Of of course. course. Absolutely. (laughs) Of course. I I, I agree. We really appreciate your work. Um, all these years of being, um, um, a channel of information from labs and from very esoteric medical communities to the public. You know, you make science palatable and ubiquitous by making it sound less like palatable and ubiquitous. You use very simple words for people to understand what science is all about. As you know, when when we all go to a conference, it becomes an echo chamber. It's essentially us talking to each other about the importance of science. But over the years, you've written fabulous books. And I remember as a resident carrying your disease-proof book because it was small enough it would fit in my pocket. I I can't tell you how many times I've shared that with, you know, colleagues and friends and even patients. Um, and we so appreciate I, that. that. That's great. I, as I told you before we started recording, I was convinced that the only people who had ever read my books was my mother um, <laughs> several times over. So thank you. Of course. <laughs> Let's talk about your new book um, because I'm, I'm super excited to have that with us. I have it actually here with me, The Truth About Food. Um, it's a fabulous book. It's a little intimidating. It looks like uh, an encyclopedia. It well, actually There's an exercise benefit from taking it down. <laughs> right. um, beautiful book. And, oh, you know, you. unlike almost um, all other nutrition books, you you talk about understanding statistics. Um, and, you know, your book is divided into two parts. Part one is dedicated to statistics, which is just brilliant. Lies, statistics and damn lies. Those are the titles <laughs> of the three chapters. Can you shine uh, some light on the importance uh, for a layperson to understand the basics of statistics? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. And, you know, just a, a few things about the book. So it, it really is everything I know, but I thought that's not enough. I mean, people have heard before that broccoli is good for them. Telling them again, you know, it's really not a game changer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can explain how you know what you know and how you know what to trust and how you differentiate valid sources from invalid sources, and, you know, th- that 
that's skill power. That's something that when the next story breaks, if you're really, if you're armed with that, you're immunized against misinformation and disinformation. And, you know, you're, you're empowered to sift information the way an expert would and, and decide what's wheat, what's chaff. And so, I, you know, it, it, it's funny because the book is 750 pages. And, you know, it's entitled The Truth About Food, Why Pandas Eat Bamboo and People Get Bamboozled. And I joke in the book, you know, th this book could just be seven words long and they wouldn't even be my words. They'd be Michael Pollan's words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Thanks for stopping by. Uh, but, you know, it's 200,000 words because the truth about food is simple. The lies are complicated. And, and the lies encompass lies, which, you know, basically is distortion, some of which are well-intentioned. Damn lies, which are, I consider, willful attempts to deceive the public for personal gain. There's a lot of that, too. And statistics. And we actually just had, I think, a, as vivid an example of the mischief in statistics as we possibly could have with. So we're having this conversation. It's, it's just a week after, I think, one of the greatest um, imbroglios in, mm -hmm. in public health information, maybe in my entire career. And that was uh, publication in the Annals of Internal Medicine of a cluster of systematic reviews about meat and processed meat consumption and health outcomes and guidelines telling people, go ahead and keep eating meat and processed meat. Mm -hmm. And frankly, this is all about the potential mischief in statistics and scientists getting carried away with what they're able to contribute and how people understand what's true. So, um, you know, in brief, I, I suspect uh, listeners may be familiar with the story, but the cluster of systematic reviews, all of which showed significant harm, increased rates of premature death, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, if you eat more red meat and processed meat. Right. But this particular group of meta-analysts used a particular scoring metric, so effectively the tools of statistics, to grade the evidence. And the, the tool is called GRADE, and it places a premium on randomized controlled trials. And of course, you know, how many long-term dietary intervention studies or randomized controlled trials. I'm going to randomly assign you guys to either eat nothing but meat or never eat meat for the rest of your life. I mean, right. who signs up for that, right? Nobody signs up for that. No. Not to mention that even if you could do it, not good enough because what we want is not just randomized trials. We want randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials. Well, how do I blind you to what you're eating every day? Not so easy. Yes. Right? And what is a placebo diet anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, the idea that one tool can do every job best is absurd. Right. So, you know, first of all, and, and I'm someone who's run a research lab for the past 20 years, has conducted and published randomized trials. I have real respect for what they can do, mm -hmm. but it's just one tool. I, I have a carpentry shop too. I'm quite a good woodworker. I have real respect for what every tool in there can do too, but I can't use a saw for a hammer and I can't use a hammer for a screwdriver. Every tool does its job and you've got to use the right tool for the job. So first of all, there is this exaggeration of the role of the RCT. And then you use grade to score your evidence and say relative paucity of RCTs, therefore I'm gonna grade the evidence as low. And, and what this particular group of researchers then said was, well, we found significant harms of, of eating more red meat and processed meat like everybody else did. We graded the evidence as weak and therefore we're issuing guidelines to say do the opposite. Yeah. Now, is this statistics? Well, in a sense it is because ultimately this becomes a conversation of how human beings know and understand things. 
So, you know, I've, I've already written about kids running with scissors. You know, if you were to do a systematic review and meta-analysis of the literature on the harms of running with scissors, you'd find really no good observational epidemiology and certainly no randomized trials. You would grade the evidence as very weak. You would say, well, kids like to run with scissors. So on that basis, we're going to issue guidelines that kids should just be allowed to run with scissors. And every parent would say, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. And they're right. Well, how do they know that running with scissors is a bad idea? Pure observation, pattern consistency. Mm -hmm. you know, essentially, most of what human beings know about how the world works is just the power of observation, which starts to raise questions about what science and statistics are for. And really what they're for is to populate the gaps in the knowledge we have of the world from the power of observation and pattern consistency. We don't need a randomized trial to know that if we toss an apple in the air, it will fall back down. Mm -hmm. Every apple ever tossed in the air down here has fallen back down. So, you know, essentially it's cause and effect just on the basis of pure observation. Um, there are, to my knowledge, no randomized trials to prove that if you put your hand in a fire, you're going to get burned. And yet every human being is aware of the danger of fire and, and recoils when you get too close. Just observation. Not even observational epidemiology, not observational research, just observation. So, you know, essentially statistics can be manipulated to produce extremely misleading answers. And you need to explain to people, I think, um, these are all just tools in a toolkit and they perform a particular function. Everything we do in statistics, and I, you know, I've written um, textbooks on the topic, and we're up to our fifth edition of the, the Jekyll Epidemiology Biostatistics textbook. It'll be out soon. Um, you know, essentially all we're doing is when we're unsure about cause and effect relationships, we're using statistics to attenuate our uncertainty. That's really what it's about. Mm -hmm. But in those situations where we're already sure, like for example, toss an apple, it will not float away, it'll fall back down. Put your hand in a fire, it will get burned unless you're Daenerys Targaryen. And there aren't, there aren't too many of us who are direct descendants of dragons. Uh, all the rest of us get burned. Um, you don't need statistics. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're routinely manipulated. The other thing is, you know, one of the great problems in nutrition with not just statistics, but research methodology is, and, and I've tried to say this every way I possibly can over the years, and, and I, I, most recently I said it this way, science, like a randomized trial, has the power of a freight train. There's no question, there's great power, it, the, the potent, the, the acuity of science, but sense must lay the tracks, otherwise mm -hmm. you just get a train wreck. And, and so, you know, another way to think of it, yes, yeah, science is the most powerful means we've ever devised to answer hard questions, the questions emanate from sense. Sense tells us what are important questions to ask and answer in the first place. But if you're up to no good, if you're engaged in mischief, and again, it may be inadvertent, it may be intentional, all you need to do is ask a bad question and engage the power of science to answer it, and you will produce misleading information with the power of science rather than illuminating information with mm -hmm. the power of science. And there, there are innumerable examples of this. Really simple one is the endless debate about stuff like low fat versus low carb. Mm -hmm. So you, you, know, you, you feign uh, a devotion to an important erudite scientific question, which is better. But then all you really need to do is design a randomized trial for six months in people with type 2 diabetes or at risk for type 2 diabetes, pick whatever you want, in which you have a preference. And so your intervention 
you simply describe it as we randomly assign this group of adults with these cardiometabolic risk factors to a low-fat diet or a low-carb diet, and it sounds very impressive, and you produce your p-value, and one of them's the winner. Which one? The one you decided at the start was going to be the winner because you like the low-carb diet, so you had an excellent low-carb diet, and your low-fat diet was Coca-Cola and cotton candy. Mm-hmm. You didn't mention that in the headline, but you know that's a low-fat diet. There's no fat at all in a diet exclusively of Coca-Cola and cotton candy, fat-free. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, people are not going to do terribly well on the Coca-Cola cotton candy diet. Conversely, if you want to prove that low-fat is better, you put together a really good low-fat diet made up of whole plant foods, and, you know, your low-carb diet is, you know, basically it, it exclusively, I don't know, pastrami, pick something, or, you know. But, um, you know, either way, you can turn one of these into a straw man that goes up in flames. That's done routinely. The real harm begins when it's done both ways. So we've got one news cycle telling everybody low-fat wins, and we've got another news cycle telling everybody low-carb wins, and the next thing you know, the public says, I can't trust any of these mm-hmm. guys. And exactly. my, my lifelong, career-long fear has been that we, we fail to evince the massive consensus about the weight of evidence. We veil it with this fractious bickering. We cause the public to distrust us all, and we wind up propagating disgust. Those guys, all they do is argue. They're contradicting one another all the time. They don't know what they're talking about. So I'm just going to ignore them. And then all this incredible power of science and statistics and research methodology is squandered mm-hmm. because you know we, we have failed to demonstrate how it can be harnessed for good and how we can follow the aggregation of evidence over time. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful. I remain optimistic. Martin Luther King said, you know, the arc of justice is long, but it bends, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. I, I would say the arc of science is long, but it bends towards truth. You know, ultimately, when you ask enough questions, even when there's some bad questions in the mix, and you answer, 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 and you aggregate what you find, it really does start to reveal the truth. Um, but it is a long journey, and along the way, a lot of people get lost in the woods. No, I I can't agree with that anymore. I mean, this is on uh, the the battle that we're ahead. But but I always step back and think about the fact that where we started. I mean, thousands of years ago, a few hundred years ago, and 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 the, the Stephen Pinkard and Dr. Gould, I believe, have a video. It's an animation. It's a beautiful animation about reason. The sticky capacity, the sticky quality of reason. It has this amazing effect that it doesn't go away once it comes to the surface. Yeah, you can obfuscate, you can bend, you can you know take away the light, whatever you do. Eventually, once it's come to the surface, it, it it's not going to go away. It's just that the rest of us in, in in the time scales that we have, we get frustrated, and and that's right. those are some frustrations of temporal nature of our existence. It's a long arc. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it no, is. And, and I, that's a really good point. And and actually another issue. And, and this is the reason for the subtitle of the book, by the way. Yeah. Um, you know why pandas eat bamboo and people get bamboozled. So I do talk about pandas and they eat bamboo. And it's not that bamboo is a is a particularly nutritious food. But pandas are adapted to, giant pandas are adapted to eat bamboo, um, and they do, um, without any randomized controlled trials to show that it's the <laughs> right stuff for them to eat, right? So, you know, the idea that we are a kind of animal, we're a species, and that before ever we invented science, we knew how to feed ourselves. 
somehow that's gotten lost on the way. Every wild species on the planet knows what to eat, and they don't do you know research epidemiology. They, you know, they just they have adaptations, and they eat the way prior generations ate. That worked for humanity too. That worked for Homo sapiens for a very long time. With the invention of science, with you know essentially the ability to channel reason and and make it that much more potent with methodology. We should have only gotten better. We should we should have been able to say, look, we knew an awful lot about how you know the basic care and feeding of Homo sapiens to begin with, like every other species does, just because we've been here a long time. Mm-hmm. And now we can use science to populate the gaps, but we get carried away. You know, we started instead of using science to answer questions, iconoclast contrarians started using science to question answers, and you know. Is it really true that that you know vegetables are good for people or fruit is good for people? You know, you you can you can turn everything into a question, and and you know, being in, inquisitive and curious, uh, that's that's a crucial set of attributes for scientists. But you can get carried away and you start questioning all the answers and saying, okay, so now we need a randomized controlled trial and a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials to answer this. And at the end of that long causal chain, you wind up with the train wreck we just had, guidelines telling people to go ahead and, you know, eat pepperoni yeah. and all will be well. Uh, it's wrong. It's mm-hmm. absolutely wrong. It's, it's a misapplication of science. So, so in the book, I should back to your question. So yeah, lies, damn lies and statistics. So, you know, I talk about issues of statistical power and research design and essentially the ways in which statistics can distort the truth, and we have to be on guard against that. And and the goal of all of that, um, and you know, I really was thinking, why does the world need another book about nutrition? I mean, all the answers are out there already. That well, the, the ideal thing would be if you could immunize people against the next fad diet without even knowing what it is. That would be novel. And so that was the contribution I was trying to make. Yes. Whatever comes along next, you need the ability to judge: is this valid? Is it not valid? What you know? What produced this information? How does it fit in with what we knew before? And if you can empower people that way, I think that's a novel contribution. And that took 750 pages. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, the uh, attempt. We we value that so much. Yes. I mean, to be honest, one of the first series of of um, data and books that we had our kids read was about logical fallacies. Uh, uh, and and right. and how to cut through this? Uh, well, we can say bull. Um, there, there's a lot of it out there. So, yeah. given that, in that context, especially with social media, especially with 500 channels out there uh, on TV, uh, you know, there's a. Inc- I think the challenge is becoming more difficult. Right. That sure. arc doesn't bend by itself. It needs the you know the MLKs, the Gandhis, and others, and and uh, you amongst them, and hopefully we will have a little bit of a, but but that bending is required, and 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 where do you see science, good science, and you kind of alluded to that a little bit, and more importantly, in the context of all this noise and the capacity of the noisemakers, and I see a lot of malintent because industry yeah, and all everything yeah. else, how do we? Collectively, you know, THI does an amazing job. Yeah, yeah. But, so that's, that's yeah. what we need to talk about. Yeah, thanks. So, first of all, thank you. You put me in very rarefied company, uh, MLK and Gandhi. <laughs> so I, you know, I don't aspire so high, but thank you. Um, but, you know, as you were talking, I was picturing the arc as kind of a metal rod with, with you know, the risk of it pointing in, in the wrong direction. And we're pulling on it to bend it into the arc with, you know, truth down at the end of the rainbow, as it were. And, you know, as you were describing it that way, Dean, I'm thinking, 
only in Unity is there the strength yeah. to bend this resistant material and, and have it go in the direction where it best serves the human condition. And so that's what the True Health Initiative, or THI, is all about. It's about unity. And, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, even uh, Martin Luther King, even a Gandhi might have a hard time rising above the din today, right? I mean, they, they were here before the age of the Internet and social media. Um, and certainly in medicine, C. Everett Koop was here before the days of social media and Benjamin Spock um, mm-hmm. and Barry Brazelton. And, you know, the, the, those medical practitioners who were the go-to source. Wait a minute. What did Dr. Spock have to say about child rearing? And, you know, what did Dr. Koop have to say about this? America's doctor. Those days are gone. Um, you know, there are hundreds of channels and there are Internet echo chambers. And so when you have greater noise, the only hope of having truth widely perceived above that is a stronger signal. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I was basically facing the frustration of my own inability to, to, to be heard above the din. And, and again, as a strategic opportunist, I've tried lots of things. I, I wrote for eight years for Oprah's magazine. I've written for multiple blog platforms. Um, I, I was one of the original influencers at LinkedIn, and I continue that blog platform to this day. I worked on air for Good Morning America for two and a half years, you know, trying to reach large audiences. But you know, I mean, even the people with the largest audiences of all, Sanjay Gupta, Mehmet Oz, you know, it's just one voice in a in a massively noisy world. Um, everybody gets drowned out. Yeah. But maybe everybody coming together. And produce a signal that doesn't get drowned out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like Horton's Who's. Yes. Um, in, in the case of Horton's Who's, they came together to say we are here <laughs> to save themselves. In the case of public health, we need to come together to say we agree to save everybody. So that's what the True Health Initiative is about. Essentially, I, I had the impression from attending conferences all around the world with, with diverse colleagues that we're all more alike than different. Um, when it comes to taking care of the people we love, our families, our behaviors are very much alike, however different we may seem when there's a microphone in front of us, when we're on TV. You know, when you're on TV and you study the Mediterranean diet your whole life, you're going to talk about the Mediterranean diet as best. If you study a low-fat, you know, whole, whole food plant-based diet your whole life, you're going to talk about why that's best. But if you were to ask these two experts who seem to be disagreeing, and by the way, paleo, same thing, and you know, pick anything you like. But if you were to say, could you all say, you know, what are the common elements of really good diets? The answers would be 95% confluent and mm-hmm. only 5% divergent. Right. The thing is, when you're invited on TV, all you talk about is the 5%. So yeah. I thought, I think that's the truth. That's when, when we're all in the lunch line together, I'm seeing what these guys do. Yes. And you know, their plates look more alike than different from paleo to vegan and everything in between. The public deserves to know that. So it was a hypothesis that I could invite people to stand up and talk in public about the 95% and say, yeah, actually we agree. It's whatever it is, 85%, 90%, it's the vast majority of everything that matters about diet and lifestyle. And so I started out testing the hypothesis one colleague at a time, you know, I'd call friends who favored this particular aspect of lifestyle. So, we, you know, here's a pledge. Would you be willing to take this pledge and say all of this is true and the public deserves to know? And yes, I would. And, and anyway, next thing I knew, you know, I had dozens and then I had hundreds. 
And then I had, you know, this global coalition today, there's something like 500 members of the Council of Directors of the True Health Initiative from 45 countries. And they range from paleo to vegan and everything in between and expertise ranging from cancer epidemiology to cardiovascular medicine, pediatrics, geriatrics, surgery, obstetrics, sustainability, biodiversity, culinary arts, and, you know, everything under the sun. And, and you know, we've got We've got deans, the other kind of dean, (laughs) 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 deans of of schools, chairs of departments, CEOs of healthcare institutions, Mm -hmm. uh, famous health journalists like Sanjay Gupta, famous nutrition writers like Mark Bittman, famous chefs like Alice Waters, all coming together to say we agree about what matters most. I think that's powerful because the idea is there, let's all grab that rod Mm -hmm. that we need to bend in the direction of truth and understanding so that we, we can add years to lives and life years. I mean, that's, that's really the mission. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, it's a privilege to lead that organization, which is a nonprofit. And I do it purely for passion. Um, you know, when the resources are there, I wouldn't mind it paying me something for my time. But to date, it has not. Um, and it takes up a massive amount of my time. And, and by the way, all proceeds from the Truth About Food go to the True Health Initiative. Wonderful. I just believe it's so important. Yeah. Um, there, there are fundamental truths. There really are. I mean, we, we, we manage to obscure that these days. Um, that's the danger of this incredibly noisy world. And although all the wrong people say all the wrong things about fake news, yes. uh, you know, there really is fake news and there yeah. really is fake news about health and conspiracy theories. And, and we need a new method to fight back because it is a new day. And I think the True Health Initiative is that method. Speaking of fake news, I'm sorry, but I actually have to go through it because that 5% of disparity or disagreement actually takes a whole lot of real estate and on the news and in our conversations. And it's very uncomfortable. Um, I'll give you an example. I was at Dr. Oz last week. They had invited me to talk about sleep and brain health. And I crossed paths with Dr. Hyman. And um, Mm. I found out that he was there to discuss this um, Annals of Internal Medicine cluster of papers. And uh, later that day, I I, I saw his uh, video on Instagram, all giddy and smiles, um, making a statement. And, you know, he made some really outrageous statements saying things like um, uh, things about healthy user effect, the the fact that it's not about the cow, it's about the how, that it's not the meat, it's the unhealthy diet. And he said something about statistics that I didn't quite agree with, but I wanted to see what you thought. He said that increased risk should be 200 percent or larger for it to be effective or at least significant. And we all know in statistics that that that's not how it works i want to know what you think about that yeah so uh, let's not have this conversation be about any one person exactly um but if we go from a single person to a prototype i you know i do think it's important for the audience to know that anytime you're dealing with someone whose primary mission is to promote themselves and their brand as opposed to truths, you know, whether or not it's their native preference, but, you know, it's true. It's what the evidence shows. Um, step back and nobody will get hurt. Uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, that's, that's dangerous. And, you know, really in medicine, we pledged ourselves first do no harm, be about advancing the human condition. Um, and, you know, yeah, it, maybe maybe you'll get famous doing it, but it's got to be a byproduct. It cannot be the, the primary goal. And you can tell when it's the primary goal and that's toxic. Um, so I, I have real issues with that. Um, I do. I, I have. I didn't see. I, I'd spoken to Mehmet, by the way, before uh, we, we we talked about the meat study. I knew before that um, Mike Royzen and, and Mark Hyman were going to be on to talk about it, 
and I and I said, well, I'm really glad one of them's going to be there. <laughs> I, I, hear, I, I haven't seen the segment, but I heard from my wife that actually it went pretty well, um, and that Mehmet did a good job sort of setting the record straight. Sure. But 200% risk increase, uh, absolute nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in epidemiology 101, and by the way, I taught epidemiology yeah. at the of L School of Medicine for 10 years. Um, you know, Epi 101, consider the denominator. So, um, you know, let's say, and, and this was obviously completely lost on these guys who did these systematic reviews in the annals because they decided, you know, the, the risk variance with eating processed meat is small. Not at all. You know, they were talking about 15, 20% variance in the rates of cancer, premature death. So, so let's look at it this way. Let's say that there's some lifestyle-related behavior. It could be related to diet, could be exercise, could be sleep, whatever it is, the important stuff, um, that is associated with a shift in the risk of premature death of one per thousand per year. Now, as an individual, you'd say, you know, 999 chances out of a thousand that I'll dodge this bullet. Maybe I'm willing to take that risk because I really, you know, like pepperoni pizza or whatever it is. But when you're talking about guidelines for a population of 325 million people, one extra death per thousand per year is 325,000 premature deaths, yeah. 325,000 suffering families at a bedside in the emergency room or the ICU or the coronary care unit saying goodbye, 325,000 mourning families. Any nincompoop who thinks there's anything remotely trivial about that doesn't live in the world I live in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you absolutely have to think about scale and what is a small negotiable risk for an individual may be massively important at the level of public health. And and, and one of the critical limitations of public health, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm board certified in preventive medicine, public health. This is my field. There is a critical limitation to public health, and that is there is no public. The public is a fiction. Because you talk about the public, it's nameless, it's faceless, it's anonymous. There's no love there. There is no public. There's you and me and everybody else. And when we talk about 325,000 premature deaths that didn't need to happen, those are real people. You may not know them. I can't name them all. But they're people just like you and me. You cut them, they bleed, somebody dies, and the family suffer. So you cannot play fast and loose with statistics. You've got to to translate that into – what does that mean in terms of the human experience? What does that mean at the level that people are going to feel it? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the magnitude of risk variance is one important consideration, but the scope and the scale, um, if something is common, heart disease, massively common, small variance in something like heart disease, massive impact on the population. And the population is not a statistical anonymous mass. It's people. It's us. It's families. We, we, we lose that at our peril. So, no, I mean, the, the idea that there's one size fits all, what constitutes an important variance in risk, absolutely absurd. You know, it, it, frankly, in, in an extremely rare condition, something that happens, you know, once in 100 million people, 200% risk increase means, you know, it'll, it'll happen twice in 100 million people. Right. It, it went from vanishingly trivial to vanishingly trivial, yeah. despite a massive increase in relative risk. Right. The absolute risk increase is one per hundred million. It's it's negligible. Correct. You know, you just as soon worry about getting struck by lightning while being eaten by a shark. Um, on the other hand, when you talk about common conditions, relatively small variance in relative risk is a very meaningful difference in absolute risk. And so, it, yeah, I mean, 
all I can say is a statement like that issues from the mouth of someone who doesn't understand statistics. We, we In our clinic, <clears throat> what you spoke about earlier, there are certain observations, qualitative data you might call it, but there are strong observational um, um, data that, that speak volumes and and we live in Loma, well, we live in Redondo now, but we, uh, our clinic's in Loma Linda University. And in my clinic, 3,000 patients and in a population where 50% are plant-based. 50% of that population is plant-based. They don't yeah. have many other clinics to go to within two hours. And, and it is a Loma Linda. So, and you would expect 50% of the people who develop dementia to have the, a, a diet that's mostly plant-based. And the numbers we saw was 19 out of 3,000. We, you know, the whole coconut oil revolution was based on an anecdote of one. And we, when we wrote the book, we said it's anecdotal, it's cross-sectional, take it as such, but it's a good first step and it's a powerful observational data, and we just called it that. But it's powerful, and we saw the same thing in the churches right outside of 10, where the, you know, the, the low socioeconomic uh, populations live. Every 65-year-old that came to us had vascular dementia. We're not very good at parties. When people talk to us, we kind of know who has what cognitive, you know, bradykinesia, bradyphrenia, the slowness. <laughs> you kind of know. And, and the difference. I, I hope I'm doing okay so you're, far. You're yeah. doing, you're, you're, you're yeah. Fabulous. It's but, like when you're talking to the psychiatrist, you're always worried. Are they going to do this absolutely crazy? <laughs> no, but, but, but the date, I mean, the, the difference was just massive between yeah, this no. population. It had nothing to do with age differences. It had nothing to do with socio, it was just socioeconomic and public health, number one, two, three. Access, access, access. You know, in real estate, it's location. In public health, yeah. access to information, access to resources. Yeah, and we, social determinants, hugely important. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah so, it's, so, and, and it's, it's observation. And the interesting thing, Dean, is that, you know, as a clinician and as an expert in this space, you've, you've got a unique concentration of observation. But on the other hand, you know, you think about diet and lifestyle. Everybody has one. Everybody. Yeah. Every human being that ever was has diet and lifestyle. So we're all observing it all the time. And everybody knows from their social networks and from their extended families who's healthy, who's not, what behavioral patterns tend to cluster with what. You know, it's on display. So actually, yeah. you know, people may get caught up in a given news cycle, but there's a vast amount of genuinely common knowledge about what's associated with the healthiest people you know, the longest lived people, the most vital people, the things they tend to do. And, you know, it's on display, less, less concentrated for most of us than for you. But I think the same thing you're describing about, hey, you know, th this is not, you're, you're not seeing the rates of disease evenly distributed in the population. There's massive clustering associated with lifestyle practices and social conditions. Everybody's looking at that all the time. And that's the foundation of our knowledge. Again, that's the power of observation, those patterns at scale. They really do matter. I, and, I agree. And, yeah. and research then can refine our understanding. Um, but it's really, you know, again, any particular research method is a tool in the toolkit. And, 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 you know, we need to be humble about that. And the public needs to understand that, that no, you know, you really, it, you know, if you are listening to someone who says my one tool and, you know, my one way of weighing and measuring is always the right answer, mm. you're probably dealing with a fanatic. Yeah. Right, um, right. Bertrand Russell famously said, the whole thing wrong with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so sure and wiser people so full of doubts. 
It's absolutely true. And, you know, I think one of one of the elements of wisdom people should be looking for when they're getting information is here's what we know. Here's how we know it. Here's what we don't know. Here's what we wish we knew. I mean, you know, it's never I'm absolutely right. Everyone else is absolutely wrong. I have privileged, rarefied knowledge. I'm the only one willing to share it with you. When you start hearing that. Mm -hmm. Step away from your credit card quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity to ask a burning questions. I mean, um, as far as um, determine, determining what's good for, for, for your health and, you know, following a particular pattern is concerned, the question of oil comes up over and over again in dietary patterns in our clinics. And, you know, we, we work with some doctors and some scientists who have done some pivotal works like the Esselstyns, but... Um, when you want to bring a change at a population level and when you're working with in the realms of public health, you have to be cognizant of the degree of change you're introducing. I wanted to I want to hear from you what your thoughts are. I mean I've read your book and I know exactly, but for 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 our audience I think they would want to know what you think about oil and including that in our diet. And Aisha, you may may recall, it was a particularly lengthy entry in the book, The Truth yes. About Cooking Oil. Yes. And it was actually one of the toughest entries. And I, you know, I, I, I really spent a lot of time um, with colleagues with really rarefied expertise. So, you know, people like Walter Willett, who's done the largest um, epidemiologic studies. And of course, I'm very familiar with Essie's work and with Dean Ornish. Of and um, but I also conferred with lipidologists and you know, really got into the details of how the oils are processed, the fatty acid distribution, mechanistic studies, all the different things we know. Um, you know here I, I would say that there's more than one way to eat badly and there's more than one way to eat well. Um, you know, I, don't, I don't think it's coincidence that we see two blue zones in the Mediterranean region of the world with high fat intake, but it's you know, overwhelmingly extra virgin olive oil. Um, actually, uh, I, this is this is confidential information. So everybody listening, don't tell anybody. <laughs> uh, we just wrapped a study at the Prevention Research Center where we directly compared extra virgin olive oil to refined olive oil. Because you know, I think one of, one of the mistakes I've heard made is the argument: uh, olive oil causes endothelial dysfunction, you know, important measure of vascular health. It depends on the olive oil. Well, we found exactly what we expected to find. Extra virgin olive oil, marked improvement in endothelial function. Amazing. But ref- degraded olive oil, degradation of mm. endothelial function. So, you know, it, it's, not just, it's not just what we call an oil. It's the actual condition of the oil. My view is, you know, we've got blue zones in Icaria, Greece, Sardinia, Italy, high intake of healthy oils. They live to be 100. They don't get chronic disease. They don't get dementia, Right. Um, and we've got blue zones in Loma Linda and Okinawa, Japan, where there's a very low intake of fat for the most part, relatively low. Right. I think you can get there either way. We do have studies, uh, you know, Dean and, and Essie in particular, um, looking at very low-fat plant-based diets to regress coronary atherosclerosis. On the other hand, we've got studies like the Lyon Diet Heart Study, very high-fat Mediterranean diet, exact same reduction in the rate of MI. Mm-hmm. Now. They didn't happen to do coronary angiography, so you know you can hear people say, "Yeah, but we're the only ones who have data to show regression of plaque." And my answer to that is, who cares? I mean, regression of plaque is an intermediate variable. What we care about is did people get MIs and did they die? If they were healthy, didn't have MIs, didn't have angina, 
you know, we can assume their plaque was shrinking or stable. So we've actually seen that with higher low fat intake. And it all comes down to what are the sources of the fat? So nuts and seeds, high in fat, but, you know, overwhelming evidence that nuts and seeds in the diet. And again, we're talking about in their whole unprocessed state. We're not talking about, you know, um, uh, what would it be? Uh, caramel roasted almonds, you know, where you, you roast them in some oil, coat them in, in caramel candy. Yeah, that's just another story. Yes. Uh, so, you know, raw almonds, raw walnuts, all, you know, all that stuff. Um, really terrific evidence that, that they're beneficial for health. Um, in terms of oils that are extracted, a lot depends on how they're extracted. So if they're cold pressed, mechanically extracted, not chemically extracted, if the native fatty acid distribution is good and it's preserved, and if, by the way, you get it from a plant that's rich in other nutrients like the phytonutrients. I mean, there, there are really interesting antioxidant compounds in olives. Oleocanthal, um, you know, there's a whole body of research just on oleocanthal, and, and some of the effects are remarkable. And, it, and by the way, it, these are effects that sort of rival the stuff that, that Dean Ornish and, and um, Essie like to talk about, changes in gene expression, um, reductions in the rate of mutagenesis, I mean, really provocative stuff. Right. So, so I say if you enjoy a diet that includes oil, um, choose wisely. Extra virgin olive oil, probably the best evidence all around. Um, but canola oil, organic cold-pressed canola oil, it, it, the people fuss about it. But actually, the fatty acid distribution of canola oil is outstanding. Um, and it's, it's, it's what it used to be. Rapeseed was the original plant, and it produced a compound called erucic acid, which had some toxic. That's long gone, mm -hmm. ancient history. Canola oil has excellent uh, health properties. Um, Coconut oil, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't know where you stand on that. The, the um, you know, there's a lot of hype about coconut oil. It became extremely popular. The bottom kind of dropped out because there's a lot more marketing than science. Yes. On the other hand, um, you know, I mean, it, it's got nice culinary properties, and so I would say, you know, if you use it, don't use it because it's going to promote your health. Uh, I don't think we have any evidence that it does. It, it's an interesting oil. Right, it's high in saturated fat, but predominantly lauric acid. And the mm -hmm. lauric acid in coconut oil doesn't seem to behave the same as palmitic and myristic acid, the fatty acids that are predominant in in red meat, for example, and, and in dairy. Um, so you know, th there's there's some subtleties we don't know. It may be that lauric acid is relatively neutral, but on the other hand, we have pretty good evidence that the fatty acids in extra virgin olive oil directly beneficial and the mm -hmm. fatty acids in canola oil directly beneficial um, believe it or not there, there's a new version of commodity soybean oil and, and this is not it's not GMO it was it's selective breeding um, with a, a fatty acid distribution that is a lot like canola and a little bit like olive and it's high in omega-3 alpha linolenic acid uh, and, you know, I, I don't know that it's readily available on supermarket shelves yet, but again, conferring with um, colleagues who are really expert in lipidology and what's going on in food processing, this is the commodity soybean oil that's now widely used in food service. And the problem with soybean oil used to be that it was high in omega-6 and had very little omega-3. This one is rich in monounsaturated fat and has a high ratio of omega-3 to omega-6. It's, it's almost a perfect oil. So, this is why that entry in the book, and if I may, I'll, I'll refer people, read the, the, the truth about cooking oil in the truth about food. It's a yes. long section, lots of citations. Um, it's subtle. And, and so, you know, the bottom line is the world's best, are, are the world's best diets high in fat or low in fat? Yes. 
Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. Honestly, it is. honestly. Yeah. I'm, I, I, you know, that's the truth. And then the question is, as always, it's the quality of the foods and balance. You know, if I, just to close this out, if I had to pick one word that most universally describe what makes good diets good, it would be balance. Mm. You know, it, it's not whether it's high or low in any particular nutrient. It's the distribution of wholesome foods and the balance achieved. And, you know, when you have a balance of fat. So, for example, why is saturated fat bad for us? Is it because it's bad for us? No, it's not that it's bad for us. It's that excess is bad for us. Deficiency mm -hmm. is bad for us. If you're eating a diet high in pro-inflammatory saturated fat, eating more of what you already have too much of, basically compounds an existing imbalance that's always bad right mm -hmm. so you know if, if you're looking for that one place of sort of stable truth balance that's really what we're looking for and and balance and if you're going to add a second word it would be balance and adaptation because what defines the healthy balance for any species is what are we adapted to need and our you know the, the modern diet is massively out of balance so you know many people are eating way too much of all the wrong oils Mm -hmm. And, you know, and maybe they're, they have a high fat diet because they're eating ultra processed food. Yeah, well, that's clearly bad. That's an imbalance. Too much saturated fat, clearly bad. Not enough omega-3, an imbalance in the other direction, all of that. Yeah. Anything that ameliorates imbalance and moves you in the direction of a healthy, wholesome balance native to your kind is a movement in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Beautifully stated. Beautifully stated. Well, um, I think we're we're going to respect your time. And, uh, you know, I think we could we talk to you for days. I have so many <laughs> questions. And I, I, I don't want to spend the entire day on the computer speaking with you, although that would be wonderful. Uh, but uh, we really appreciate so your we, time. We're, Thank we're you. Get some exercise. Or <laughs> yes. 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 No, I, I heard, I've heard that sitting is bad for you. It, so is. Like, it is. Really, it's the new smoking. That's what they call right. it. Yeah. Um, but uh, we, re we really appreciate your time. And um, it's critical for uh, those listening to order your latest book, The Truth About Food, immediately and take time to go through this this incredible book because it goes and it addresses the subtleties that you were talking about earlier. It's it's not black and white. We all have to understand the nuances. Yeah, the good news. Thank you. And, and the good news is what's actionable at the end of it all is simple and it is clear. Right. But yeah. Right. You know, in terms of how do you understand all the details along the way, it, it's subtle and we tend to like it, you know, just just tell, is it yes, is it no, is it good, is it evil? You know, no, no, there, there is nuance in the mix. Is. But, but, but fortunately, you do arrive at a place where there's real clarity. And, and we might as well go ahead and say it, right? All of the best diets are mostly made up of minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, and plain water when you're thirsty. Exactly. Yeah. If you mostly do that, whatever else you do is probably going to be okay. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. And that's exactly what we, we, we tell our patients and in our book. It's, you know, if you stick to a whole food, plant-based diet, you're good. You know, and anything around that, if, if there's some variation, you just have to be aware of it. I mean, we as work long, in the long, realm yeah. of public health um, and transparency. Translation, and we do. We have the largest uh, brain health initiative in the country in beach cities. One of our studies is seventeen hundred people, and and if we are binary, you're going to either do this or not. And, you don't lose a lot of people. Exactly. Right. It's a, it is it is a uh, you know case control uh, observational versus an inter interventional, but you can't blind it. But so you actually have to. Uh, adjust to people's diets, to adjust to their proclivities, but give them a direction, a vector, and, yeah. and how they can succeed in that direction. We, we don't have to deny the fact that there is a theme. There's a theme of optimal eating, but there are variations on the theme, and you know you should be the one in charge of your own life, and you should choose the variant that works best for you. You know, it's a little, we can borrow something from the exercise world. 
Um, there's long been the, that, that question about exercise. Which exercise is best? The one you're willing to do. Exactly. Right? I mean, because the ones you just talk about don't really do you a whole lot of good. So true. to a diet, right? Yeah. So, so true. You know, there's a theme. There are variants on the theme. Which variant is best? The one you and your family are actually willing to adopt as yeah. your lifestyle. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, it's it's been a great pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a beacon and leading the way despite the heavy resistance. We really appreciate you. Thank, Thank you. you.